Welcome to Tall, Dark, and Fictional, a podcast about romance fiction by romance writers. I am author Kat Wynn. I'm SJ Tilly. And today we have a truly amazing guest. She is definitely out here doing charity work for us, um, and I am always happy to take a handout. So you may know her as the founder of The Financial Diet, the number one destination for women to talk about money. And you've certainly seen her on social media. But more importantly, she is a romance author, and her contemporary romance, A Perfect Vintage, was just released this June. So welcome to the podcast, Chelsea Fagan. Chelsea, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Hello. Hello. Did I miss anything on your intro that you would like to add? No, that was perfect, except I'm not doing charity. I'm really happy to be. (laughs) (laughs) But like to be so clear, I love charity. Like I love to take it and I am always happy for that. Um, And many people have come on that I have been so grateful for. So I do have one question for you unrelated. I know you're a Real Housewives historian. So do we have a favorite house? It's funny you should ask that because I was uh, with two girlfriends yesterday watching uh, some new episodes and one of them is a newbie to the franchise. So she asked us that very question. And my my other friend who uh, is also a housewife historian agonized about it for like 10 minutes before coming up with a few answers. For me, not even a question, five seconds, Luann. Uh, Countess Luanda Lesseps. You got that is mine, and I can't even believe it. I can't even believe it. Now she is like a problematic queen, no doubt about it. But I mean, a cabaret, the deep voice, I I love it. If you want to hear a really fun fact about me and uh, Luann, is that I have uh, enjoyed a cheeky cigarette and a conversation with Jacques, and oh my god! On, t- on top of that, I have also so there have been two French men featured on the Real Housewives. Of New York. And the other one, my husband and I, so I had a cheeky cigarette in conversation with Jacques and my husband and I were on a vacation in the Burgundy wine region and by chance ended up at Frenchie's hotel, the other French guy from the Real Houses in New York. Um, and I saw him out on like the terrace of the hotel, um, like having a drink or whatever. And I lost it to my husband. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, whatever. And so he was like, oh, I'll make up a reason for us to be in conversation. And so he went over and he was like, do you have a lighter? And Frenchie was like, yeah, sure. And I, of course, like behind him, I was like, oh my God, are you as if I hadn't been clocking him the whole time? I was like, <laughs> Real Houses in New York, were you? Turns out he apparently loves to talk about it. So we ended up spending the whole evening with Frenchie and he gave us all the tea on the housewives. He bought us drinks. He, uh, we had cheese. It was a fantastic night. So I'm two for two on the French guys from that franchise. Oh my God. Name a greater romance than a real housewives ex lover and a cheeky cigarette out in France. A better romance than that. None, none. Love that story. So obviously you have a big platform and you've been perceived by many, many people for a while now, but how has it felt being perceived as a romance author? Um, Stressful kind of because the, you know, I think in particular because the romance community community is, um, and I think it's becoming less so, but I think for a lot of um, romance readers, there are very specific ideas about what a romance novel is and should be. And there are things that kind of violate those norms. And there can be a lot of um, sort of, I think, sometimes gatekeeping around it. And, you know, I knew in making the decision to frame my book as a romance novel that there would automatically be a lot of people who did not consider it a romance novel and therefore kind of like um, reject it or um, don't judge it on those terms. So, you know, for me and my in my work 
uh, creating educational content and financial content. There's a real sense that I get to sort of be the, or, or we, my, our, our team gets to be the arbiter of the ideas that we're putting out there and we get to kind of define our space for ourselves. And when you go into a space in a community that's so active and so established and has such firm ideas, um, it's personally to me anyway, very intimidating. Yeah. All those things are true. <laughs> no, those things yeah. are incredibly true. And when you're specifically talking about like conventions of the romance genre, capital R romance, are we talking about like the happy ending, no cheating? Like what, what specifically for you was a, a hurdle or what were you worried about? All of those things. Um, so for example, like my favorite uh, romance novel is The Idea of You um, by Robin Lee, which have you guys read it? No, I have not. I feel awful Sorry. when I haven't read the books. People pull out. Uh, it's, it's my all-time favorite. And I not only ended up getting a blurb from her, I ended up doing an event with her and we've become like friends. It's uh, That's like honestly the great love that's story awesome. of romance novel. What a dream. I'm, what yeah. a dream. Um, but a lot of people, spoiler alert, though it did come out five years ago, so you six years ago so you've had your chance but um the couple doesn't end up together the the two main yeah. couple characters don't end up together and it's a pretty heartbreaking ending but to me it's very um true to what those characters would have actually done in real life um and so for her book there is a as, as successful and popular and kind of a cult hit as it's been there's a whole subsection of people who get angry when people even refer to it as a romance novel so definitely mm -hmm. things like you know the couple having to end up happily ever after things like you mentioned the no cheating i i had to make the dis initially in the first draft of my book uh because my characters um are not together for a almost a year of um of the text I initially had um, my main character uh, have another brief relationship where she was sleeping with the man and, um, you know, uh, had many dates with him. Like it was a more fleshed out kind of little subplot and acknowledged head on that she had, you know, had slept with him. And my developmental editor who works in the traditional romance space at a, at a large publisher was like, you have to take that out because there's a real sense among a lot of romance readers that once the couple has been established, they can't sleep with anyone else, which, you know, maybe I just have loose morals, but as a 30 <laughs> woman, I'm like, come on, girl, I'm not staying celibate for a year just yeah. to like honor some guy. That actually has happened to me before too, from feedback from editors where I'm like, well, of course they sleep with other people, but once they like connect, if there's a kiss, if there's anything, the rule in romance is absolutely no touching anybody else, unless it's a, like a polyamorous, why choose kind of romance like that, which I don't know. Are you into like, um, do you dabble in the kinky side of romance? I, you know, I've read some of it. I think, you know, for me, I'm so any, if you've read my book, you know, it's not a closed door book, but the actual on the page, um, sex is, is pretty limited and pretty metaphor, not metaphorical, but it's, it's written in a, in a sort of more, I don't know what the word I would use is, but it's not very graphic. It's not very straightforward. And I, for me personally, like what I love about romance is mostly everything that's around the actual love scenes, you know, the tension, the, you know, the context, the banter, all of those other things. And I read, I've read a few and whether it's, you know, straight hetero monogamous or more, you know, uh, divergent, I've read some really steamy romance novels. And to me, I just don't feel as 
committed or engaged to the story. I don't, I don't feel like it has the same stakes to me, so it doesn't hold my interest that much. But that being said, one of my favorite books that I guess isn't technically romance, but is queer and polyamorous and has a little bit of uh, lust in it, which is um, A Dowry of Blood by S.T. Gibson. Um, but again, that book is mostly about the interpersonal dynamics and the romance and the actual steam. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you're saying you're not reading, generally speaking, a, a tentacle-based romance novel or, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I did read, did you guys read The Nanny by Lena Ferguson? I did not. I uh, did that come out this year? Yes, it did. Okay, I have not read that one. I I promise you, we read stuff. I just swing and a miss every I'm time. I'm reading all the filthy books. That's my problem. <laughs> that is is quite randy, and I it's so funny because I did not I did not know what I was getting into, and I'm like reading it at like a Starbucks. I'm like, Ooh. <laughs> get this yeah. out of People are gonna see what I'm reading. Well, and that's what's funny though too is like because the romance readers like that you know that we interact with and like online and social media and everything else because it's like you'll see. Like, like the, the memes where they're like, you know, like you're reading the most filthy debate scene ever and you're just like straight faced in public. But then you read like a scene where they hold hands and it's just like, oh, my God. And you're Everyone's sweating. Like you're like, yeah. Oh, my God. Just like, <laughs> it's so cute because it is, you know, it is like the buildup. And now, like, to be fair, like I write long graphic sex scenes but it's also like you know it's like the little swoony moments are the ones that everyone like talks about they're like the tiny little things mm-hmm. that that's what people connect with and love I, again i think there's different you know everything has its place but i also think for me like uh there are a lot of books that i think um i don't want to say overly rely on it but i do think like for me the 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 bigger the bigger pet peeve i have in romance is when i feel like um, love scenes are not really earned by the text, um, or, you know, they don't serve an interesting purpose because at that point, I mean, let's be clear. We can also just read erotica. We can just read porn. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The love scenes have to be earned. And I think that's like a, that's a pillar of just being a writer in general, just like with any payoff of the tension that you've built, it has to feel real and it has to speak to both characters. And, and trust me, like as someone who also writes like a lot of filthy scenes, Ooh, the desire to just be like, can we just write the sex scene? Like, can we just get, cause I know that's going to be an easy five to 10,000 words. Let's just get it out there but you can't you have to earn it or you lose the trust of your of your readers and and also as a, as a reader it's like you're saying like you really appreciate the tension the moments between the characters like so do I I think that honestly is that's what we pick the books up for we want our hearts to thump a little bit and you want to feel you do want to feel embarrassed while you're reading though I think even if it's not graphic <laughs> you do want that like feeling of embarrassment yeah, yeah I'm watching <laughs> yeah I also think sometimes there can be a limited understanding of what is erotic right? Because I think, Mm -hmm. you know, yes, sex itself is obviously an erotic act, usually. Um, (laughs) But it is far from the only one. And I think part of, you know, falling in love or being in a really hot relationship is like everything becomes kind of erotic, like eating, you know, getting dressed, like feeling the sun on your skin, like all of it becomes very sensual. And I think that's a word that sensual rather than overtly sexual I think there's definitely room for both, but I have read a lot of romance novels that I find to be outside of the actual sex scenes, not very sensual, not very um, passionate or erotic. They don't have a sense of tension. They don't have a sense of 
um, lushness about them. They feel very, it almost sometimes when I read certain romance novels, I feel like it sort of reads to me as like a Hallmark movie plus sex, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And sometimes that's on purpose, I think, because there are like a okay. section of, of people who want to read that, want to write that. But no, I totally agree with that assessment. And I think that that's a challenge as a, as a writer in general, capturing the chemistry. Well, that's the best thing about romance too, is that there is quite literally, and we've talked about this before, quite literally an audience for everything. And even when you're talking about like cheating too, like, you know, we have a mutual friend, Gabby, who like will read all the cheating books. And I'm like, I, I personally don't want to, like, that's not my, like, if I know that's like, if it comes up while I'm reading a book, like that's fine. But if I know ahead of time, I'd be like, ah, I'm not really in the mood for that. You know, like, I don't want to do that. And you're right. Like there's a lot of people that just absolutely won't, but also in like these gigantic Facebook groups that like I'm a part of that are always looking for book recs. Like there are people that are specifically searching for that. And then those people are very active and like hunting them down. Now, is it a smaller percentage? Yes. But they're there, you know, like there is an audience. It's also so unfair that like, and I've seen this happen to multiple authors in the space that if you write about cheating, people assume you're a cheater, which seems so juvenile, like an assessment. For me, like someone that does that, like they're not true readers because that's also the same as like, and maybe you've experienced this now that like you have a romance novel out, like when you first, and Kat and I both talk about when we first publish, like you get the people that are close to you in real life, be like, is this what your sex life is like and you're like what a stupid question you know so like so so for me that's like that's the sort of thing oh do you oh do you cheat like what a stupid question you know like i don't know who's going to be the brave soul to do this because (laughs) it's uh, not a very uh likable story and and likability is a whole other thing that we can get into but um So we, I don't know if you guys remember that uh, story about the two Good Morning America anchors who cheated on their spouses with each other. No. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Girl, you watched some clips of them, like behind the scenes, like when it came out, people were going back and revisiting like video footage of them. The chemistry was off the charts. <laughs> obviously, they're not good people, right? Like, they're both cheating on their spouses who, like, completely di- were blindsided. It's a horrible situation. But they're kind of a standable couple, unfortunately. And I think that's <laughs> a really, really good romance novel. But whoever does it is going to have a, have a really big hurdle to clear of, like, getting accused of being a cheater yourself and having two really unlikable main characters. Ooh, I'm going to say something so unlikable myself, which is I don't think those two people are bad people. Is that, I know they hurt. I know they hurt their families. And I think that that's bad, but I also, and I, and I'm not excusing it, but I just think that like people do so many bad things like that throughout their lives that, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like people do so many bad things that we find acceptable on a daily basis. Like parents can be cruel, horrible to their children and we're fine with it. But these two people, are they cheating? Yes. Like, especially in America, do we find that reprehensible? Yes. But like, are they bad? I don't know. I don't know. Well, I think that they're cowardly. I think that's the biggest sort of character assessment that I would feel comfortable making in that scenario. But I agree with you in the sense that there are so many, in my opinion, worse sins that people commit on a daily basis that don't get seen in the same way as cheating. And I say that as someone who was cheated on by a very long-term relationship. um, And I remember how horrendous that was. But I also think looking back to me, I always look at cheating for the most part as just a very cowardly way to end a relationship. But in general, it's a relationship that was going to end regardless. No, that's fair. Well, and like in the funny, like the differentiation, um, like specifically for the, like the romance viewpoint 
is because I literally had this conversation this past weekend, like with some readers who were talking about cheating. And they're like, I don't care if they cheat on their significant others to be with each other. They just don't want cheating within the main relationship. What an interesting. The books, (laughs) right. Because they're like, if she's cheating on her husband to be with this guy or cheating on her boyfriend to be with this guy. But I'm like, but is she still sleeping with that one? They're like, no, or it doesn't matter. Just like, as long as they're not cheating on each other. I'm like, what a, what a specific thing to care about and it just again it feels like a very sort of i i have a theory that some of the romance readers who are really really gatekeepy and kind of cruel about that sort of thing to me i i i always imagine that those people don't have a ton of real world experience in relationships because they're able to have a very binary very uh moralizing and limited view of it when i think if you have dated different people, slept with different people, been in relationships, had breakups, all of these things, when you have a more kind of, um, you know, experienced view of these things, I, I think there's just such a much higher tolerance for narratives that are complicated and messy and human, you know? So one of the things that we see a lot too in romance is like, and specifically too, especially when you get to like the dark romances, people use it, I mean, well, in any sort of art form, right, obviously is like, it's an escape. And that's where people want that happily ever after. They want that safe space. And so I think there is a lot of like, where people have had these bad experiences in person and they're like, I don't want to fucking read about that. They're like, I've lived through the heartache and the torment and I don't want to relive that in a book, you know, and that's like this, yeah. the whole happily ever after thing too, is that like, I know that they might go through hell during these pages, but I know that it's a safe space at the end because we've all read those books where at the end you're just like sobbing because it's sad and they aren't happy and you're like sitting in your room crying and you're like, well, I didn't want this feeling. That's me with everything I read. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Crying immediately. For me, it's interesting. I feel like I actually prefer a more narratively satisfying and predictable arc when I watch like TV and watch movies more. And when I read, I actually think I somewhat prefer more ambiguity and more um, less neat narratives only because I feel like so much of what makes reading magical to me is just the inherently kind of limited scope that we have. So much of it is our imagination and our projection. And I feel like it makes it all the more interesting when it's like, for example, as a child free person, not to project my shit onto it, but like I always roll my eyes in a big way when we're jumping forward and we're having kids, you know? Um, And I, the thing is that I think that so much of what makes my favorite books interesting is that ability to sort of project a bit and to interpret it different in different ways and to have, you know, uh, different, you know, hopes for what the outcome would be and all of that. Whereas like with a much more literal meme, uh, a literal medium like television, for example, um, it's just kind of nice to have like, it's like the creator made this perfect little dollhouse, you know, and you're getting to just watch it. From the outside. You're talking to a group of childless by choice people who (laughs) I was just going to say, I was just going to say, so your romance novel is uh, a woman who is child free and she becomes involved with the younger man same with my um my debut romance novel same thing child free woman becomes involved oh with the younger man. yeah and of course yes uh here we are we should just call this podcast child free we should call this double income no kids uh <laughs> white women yes. in their 30s podcast <laughs> That's what we should call this. it's a long title uh, but it works <laughs> it's a long time we'll workshop the title later um yeah. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about making choices you were just touching on it now about putting in elements in your romance novel novel that are not traditional and not normally seen like who we're representing well for me the biggest things well a obviously having a child-free protagonist was 
just something that I am. And so, and I don't see it a ton in books, even if the protagonist doesn't have children, it's rarely a very explicit and intentional choice. So I wanted to do that just for, you know, representation's sake, but also because I think so much of the stigma around an older woman, younger man pairing is the sort of unspoken biological imperative that's weighing on it. And I often say in my own life that in my choice to not have children, I sometimes feel like I get to live like a man in the sense that I don't have a clock on me. I don't have this constraint because for most women in hetero partnerships, as we talk a lot about on the financial diet, you know, even when they are working full time, even when, you know, it's a theoretically very progressive and feminist couple, she's going to be doing the vast majority of labor and child rearing. So it's not just the biological ability to conceive and um, to give birth uh, more naturally and safely at a younger age. It's also the fact that she knows it's going to be hugely disruptive to her life and her ambitions and all of those things um, once the child comes. So to have a protagonist who's not bound by that and who in many ways could relate to someone um, at a different stage of life for that reason, I think is um, is an interesting and compelling thing. Um, but also, you know, for me, the, the other thing about her is that, you know, one of my biggest pet peeves in, in books generally, but especially in romance is oftentimes the protagonist is on, is theoretically a very career oriented woman, um, with a very high powered job that she identifies with at least to some extent, but we almost never see it. And at least in the case of, you know, a lot of them work in media, which is my industry, it's almost always extremely inaccurately represented. Um, and is very like, you just feel like, girl, there's no way that you are like this high powered, like editor or journalist or any of these things and like completely abandoning your career for what seems like months at a time and like never going to the office and you're, you know, it just, it feels like such an afterthought in so many books. So I really wanted to have her be someone who's an extremely career oriented person whose career takes up quite a bit of the actual narrative and is hugely impactful to the relationship. Um, because I think, again, that is a much more accurate representation to a woman who's operating. I mean, if you're featured in architectural digest, like you're at the very top 1% of your game, and that's not going to be the kind of woman who just, you know, abandons her work for months on end to pursue some guy. Career realism is definitely sometimes it's a problem <laughs> in, the, in the romance yeah. world. Let's just say, and sometimes I feel that that's okay. It's granted within the narrative, but at what price do we lose realism or like a, a deeper look into the, the inner enriched life of the female protagonist when we don't know what they do every day, but we know that they wear Manila Blahniks or whatever the going thing might be at the time. Remind me of this later too, because I have a book in mind that I cannot think, I will not be able to think of the title. I will have to search it, but it is a fantastic book of a workplace where they're like in, both in the workplace, child-free, like she's like brought in as a consultant, as a boss. Her name, she goes by George because her name's like Georgiana or something. But so people call her George. So when they hired her, they thought she was a male. Oh, like, boy. yeah, it's, it's so, and it's like, he works at there at a male magazine, I think what it is, but it's like, but it's one of those ones that does a fantastic job. Like most of the setting is in the workplace. Love that. C can't yeah. for the love fucking life of me think of what it is, but I will. And I will like post it. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to this. It's so Romance good. novel, main female character, 
characters with um, unisex or male names. That's a whole trope that I could spend like a three hours talking about, including one that I have engaged in because some of my characters do. So curious about putting this out into the world, especially with like you're not following maybe all the conventions. Um, did you feel did you and you have published other books before, but particularly about like finance and that's, you know, what your business has been. Did you feel a different sense of vulnerability about putting like emotions on the page as you did like in love and romance? Hmm. Not particularly because I think for most people, like I'm very transparent about a hundred percent of my own finances, which I think for, for me is like a much more vulnerable thing um, than, you know, my emotions per se. Um, also my first like three, four years of my career was writing for a website called Thought Catalog, where it was like all just writing about our feelings for very yeah. wide audiences. So Fair. I am already, familiar, yes. <laughs> there's very few cringe things I haven't already put on the internet, but... <laughs> That's great. No, I mean, for me, it's like for, and, you know, I think for the rest of my career, probably, like, I really look at the act of writing romance, um, especially as it pertains to the financial, logistical publishing aspects of it. Like, I really look at this as a creative passion project. And it's just something that I do for joy. And, you know, I really, you know, I enjoy the book immensely. I love reading. It. I'll just like pick it up off the shelf all the time and like read a passage and I'm like, shit hits. Oh my God. I love that for you. <laughs> and like, even like you can see, like I'm in my dining room, like I have the original oil painting from the cover uh, yes. in my home. And, you know, I, to me, it's just like a really indulgent creative experience. That's just really fun to do. So so I very much made peace with it when I put it out that, you know, it's, it's, it, it served its purpose for me. Um, and so if other people love it all the better, but if not, I don't really care. Whereas with, you know, the books that I published traditionally. So like I've got, you know, I've had my nonfiction books, the financial diet has another book coming out next year. I only wrote a small part of it, but um, still, you know, it's my company. Um, you know, I'm pitching another book now that will need to be traditionally published because it's more of like a coffee table style book. Point being, when I engage in those types of releases, I actually feel much more nervous and stressed out because first of all, like it's an area where there is a real level of expertise, you know, in fiction, anything is possible, right? You, no one can back check you. Whereas like when you put out a book about money, you know, people can say, actually that's wrong, or I think that's bad advice or what have you. Um, so I think that, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, doing things just for creative fulfillment. And I think people often, and I understand for a lot of people, it is their full-time income and therefore has a different level of pressure. And I don't want to underestimate that. But I do think for a lot of people for whom they don't have that pressure, they put, I think, a little too much pressure on themselves um, to have it be perfect or to be scared of what others might think. And to me, that sort of defeats the whole purpose of engaging in a creative act to some extent. I love that you mentioned that putting out your your own finances into the world is this very vulnerable thing. And honestly, I had never considered this before, how actually talking about your finances is much 
much more vulnerable than talking than than writing two characters, you know, engaging in some kind of sexual act on a page because and I've never done it. And I know that's part of um, like the transparency is part of what you do on the financial diet. Um, but it's just such an interesting it's like really reflective of American culture, too. I think that we're so willing to talk about some things, but not other things. Um, but speaking of just like that, uh, like a like following your creative path on this and being true to yourself, what kind of obstacles did you face while writing fiction? Well, I mean, there was the whole process. So initially my agent had um, sent it out to a few editors um, and the initial conversations that I had were extremely disheartening. Um, uh, I won't get too into it, but some of the comp titles, including Emily in Paris, um, as like references, I was just like, oh babe, like, no, 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 like, this is not what I'm going for. <laughs> uh, but also the money was not very good. And yeah. there were a lot of changes that needed to be made. And, um, because basically the message was, this is too close to women's fiction for us to market it as romance. Um, but it's not quite women's fiction. So it needs to, you know, essentially be overhauled in the following ways. And, when I submitted it to my editor that I ended up working with independently, she immediately, like she got back within like 24 hours. She was like, I need this book, blah, blah, blah. Um, but when she put it to her boss, her boss had the exact same take, which is that this is neither, you know, um, women's fiction nor romance. And so she came back with essentially a list of changes. And I just said to my agent, like, tell her like if she wants to work freelance, I'd love to work with her. And she immediately accepted. And so I was like, just pull it from consideration. I'm not going to do it. And then I just from there made, you know, a business case to determine how much I would need to invest and what my break even point was and all of that. And then I assembled, I worked with a team of five women um, and I profit share with all of them on all the different aspects of, of you know, the book production and marketing and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, once I determined determined how I was going to do it. And I knew my numbers and I was very financially literate on the space. Um, I actually felt like there weren't really any obstacles because I had made the commitment, but I did find it very, very difficult at first to rethink my notion of publishing and to, um, you know, let go of the idea that I needed to to do it in tandem with a traditional publisher. And I've been extremely transparent around the finances of the book. I mean, I have made much more self-publishing this book than I've ever made prior traditionally publishing a book, um, including books that were very successful. Um, and part of that is because the royalties in um, traditional publishing of trade paperback, which romance generally is, are really, really terrible. Um, the advances are terrible. The royalties are terrible. The finances are just really bad for authors. So um, now if any trade paperback book I ever do, I will always do by myself because I've already put in place all of the structure and I know how to do it. And it's very easy and, and it's very financially beneficial to do it if you can. But, and I've talked about this a lot, I think for a lot of people, it is including myself who like, I already had as much institutional validation about, a, about publishing as anyone could need, but I still felt like I was clinging to it. And I still felt really scared to be my own co-signer and to determine that it was worth it. Um, but I, once I made the decision, it was like, I never really looked back and I, I, I tried to do as much as I can with like author education. I've done like workshops and things like that, just about getting people more versed in the 
finances of it and the, you know, what's possible now in terms of production, because I do think, you know, publishing is not a good industry for authors, except for a very small percentage of them. And I just wish more people would, um, realize that they have more leverage than they think. And actually, this is where I originally even found out that you had written a romance novel, because although I follow you on a lot of social media, social media silos information very strangely from people, you know, you only see certain things. And I was when I saw that you had written, I was like shocked. I was like, I cannot believe this person I've been following has written a romance novel. I've never been so excited. This is how we actually interacted. I commented on one of your TikTok posts a while ago, and you were talking about this very thing about how we are looking for validation from institutions that we actually don't need. Why do we want institutional validation? Well, because a lot of industries that um, exploit their labor forces, like media, uh, entertainment, academia, politics, etc., um, they trade on prestige and gatekeeping and elitism um, as a means of compensation um, that doesn't cost them anything and also keeps their workers in a, in a state of feeling lucky to be there. You know, one of our previous employees at the Financial Diet, she, prior to working with us, had worked at The New Yorker. She was an assistant editor there. She made $27,000 a year living in New York City, which is how- not living. That's not living. Yeah. And she actually, before she came to us, she had quit The New Yorker and taken a job at a cheese shop in her neighborhood where she made substantially more because she could no longer afford to work there. And it was also she was working really long hours and everything. But and she wrote about it for us. She was like, there was a huge emotional like process of leaving and accepting that like my, like, for example, like my parents could no longer walk into a room and say, my daughter works for the New Yorker, you know, like I could no longer be on a first date and say, that's what I did. Like, and that like learning that that actually does not define me. And that doesn't actually have any real meaning outside of the opportunities that it can provide me. Like if it's providing you with a good life or more opportunities or more freedom or any of these things, great. But if it's not providing any of those things, then it really is meaningless. And um, so, you know, her accepting that was a really challenging emotional thing. And I do think, you know, I totally understand why people get into that. Like, I don't have a degree, for example. I went to a community college. You know, I uh, never had, um, you know, those kind of like very traditional markers of success to kind of fall back on. So I was very vulnerable to wanting those things. But ultimately, again, like I, I can look at, you know, the finances of every single. So like, for example, my book this summer was listed as like a best of summer book by like a ton of real magazines like Harper's Bazaar or Grazia or Travel and Leisure, whatever. These magazines that like I read, very exciting. I don't think that sold one goddamn copy, not one. (laughs) You know, a random booktuber who got the book and made a couple YouTube videos about it, like that sold a thousand copies just from her, you know? And I, I think that we all know on some level that that's how things work now, but like institutions do a really good job of convincing us otherwise. Oh, that's, that is their job. I mean, it's that capitalistic, patriarchal bullshit. Whether it's writing or any other creative endeavor, the, the reality is that only a very small percentage of people will ever be able to make it their full-time income. And the number of authors or creatives who you think are making it their full-time income, like the number of undisclosed rich spouses or rich family members in this industry (laughs) and others is 
out of control. And like, again, even if they do end up becoming, having a very lucrative career, they were able to pursue it because they had other sources of income. So unless you're married to, you know, a benefactor, essentially, I think the most important thing creatives can do is focus on achieving a level of financial stability and, and, and autonomy that you don't, you're not beholden to these predatory deals and to these, you know, people who don't respect you or who are not, who do not have your best interest at heart, like being able to walk away and to say no to things and to not be impressed by things is probably the most powerful tool you can have in any business situation, but especially in a creative one where it's, you know, it's theoretically not just exchanging labor for money. It's also creating something that you're passionate about, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. And I will say for full transparency, I just have had my one year anniversary of writing full time just recently, which is super exciting and way more lucrative than corporate America ever was for me. However, it is also still scary because it's the you, like, I don't have a long enough track record yet to like find out what my norm is, you know? So when you're talking like actual finances and like planning and things like this, and you're like, well, last year was this, this year was this next year could be half of what it is now. It could be double again. It could be, you know, so it's like a very wild situation where you're trying to figure out what to do and then you do have pressure on yourself you're like okay well my next book comes out December 28th I need to start writing the next one so I have that out so I can like keep doing this you know and you're like but you you don't want and I'm still enjoying it I'm still having a great time but there is definitely you know like you talk to authors and you see it where they're like under pressure they're putting themselves under this own pressure because now it is your livelihood and you're like okay how do I make this sustainable? What does that look like? I just pulled you up. I'm so excited to dive into all of this stuff. Um, <laughs> that is one of the few things, just followed you back. One of the few things I don't know about um, self-publishing and like alternative publishing is um, Kindle Unlimited. So I'm excited to dive in. Ooh, okay. I feel like that is it. a whole new world. Yeah. So I know we're running out of time and I don't want to, I do want to disclose also, and I disclose this on my podcast that I am married to a rich benefactor. So, (laughs) which is working great. (laughs) Which has worked out for me. Uh, I am also, I mean, it's not really, we're both rich benefactors at this point. Like we're both successful financially, but I'm very transparent about the fact that the first two years of my business, I wasn't really making any money at all. And my husband supported us. So I think that's a really good thing and important thing to disclose. Absolutely agree with you. I want to ask you something a little bit off topic, but only because it personally affects me, which is I have heard you discuss how you are a night owl. And I am so curious how this has affected you creatively and also just how this has affected your life more broadly and like especially with work I mean SJ and I are both night owls and um yeah it does rule our lives yeah. <laughs> 2 a.m is a normal time to be messy yes yeah. <laughs> common I we, we, we gotta give <laughs> us um yeah. I would say it affects my life quite a bit less now that I have a four-day work week because I'm able to do so much like today is Friday. So I do stuff like this. I have um, work that I do for um, like, you know, side projects or creative projects or mentoring or whatever. Like I'm able to do all of that on Fridays now. And so I don't really have the same sort of pressure to use my evenings wisely. However, I still very much um, my preferred rhythm is I work. I don't really start working before 10 a.m. Like I'll get to, when I go to the office, sometimes I'll get in at like 9.30, 9.45, but like I'm not really doing meaningful work until 10. Um, I take a long lunch. I We all leave the office by 5, 5.30. Um, and I personally like to, when I get home, 
I'll like start cooking dinner, start doing things. I'll do a little bit more work. And then we typically eat on the later side. Like we'll eat at like 8.30 or so, 8.30 and sometimes nine. Um, and then maybe a little bit more work after that. But I personally find that I'm just much more creatively and um, critically um, savvy in the evenings. Um, and I also find that there's like a bit of, I'm just like a very sort of mercurial person by nature. Like I like a little bit of, you know, what's going on here. And the, the evening with a little candle going uh, is just like, to me, the vibes are so much better. And I really do feel like, I, and don't get me wrong, I love a morning person. Many of my best friends are people. Uh, but, uh, but I do think something that, you know, kind of um, uh, stunts my creativity or my ability to do my best work in the mornings is a feeling that I think there's a real pressure to be productive early in the day. And even amongst people who do naturally wake up at that hour, it's usually framed through the prism of everything they're able to do with that time, whether it's exercise or work or, you know, personal development or whatever. Whereas I feel like people just generally accept that evenings are just sort of like a free zone. And so for me, that lack of pressure to be productive weirdly makes me more productive. Makes perfect sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. Now I'm yeah. going to ask something that's so insane. Um, so my night owlness, I think is both like a circadian rhythm thing, but I also think it's born of childhood trauma of like severe anxiety about school. Does anybody relate to that? I enjoyed school. I was that kid. Okay. You're a freak for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I didn't like getting up early. I've always gotten up at the last second. <laughs> I hated school. And also my high school started at 717. In the oh morning. my God. The <laughs> 717, which I think actually should be illegal because we, we know very well that that's really bad for like teenage development and mental health but yes i totally agree that's yeah, way okay. too early <laughs> okay so i go to bed at 7 17 yeah i was up till 3 a.m both of us were we both um, were yeah. okay so i know last couple seconds when we're talking evening creativity do you have another romance book in yes, mind? on the horizon yeah yes uh so i'm working like i said so i'm doing a proposal right now for a book that i will have to traditionally publish because i wouldn't be able to produce it on my own um it's going to be more of like a cookbook but a cookbook in format but not a cookbook it's going to be about like entertaining dinner parties hosting house guests things like that because that's a big passion of mine um so i'm doing that i'm working on I, i'm almost finished with that proposal and i'll get that out and then i have about 30,000 words, maybe 40,000 words of my second romance novel, which is Enemies to Lovers. And mm. for those who like the television show Below Deck, it mostly takes place <laughs> on a sailing yacht. Ooh, <laughs> um, oh my God. Here for it. <laughs> so very, very Below Deck. I'm framing it as like Below Deck meets the talented Mr. Ripley because it's a lot about class and money and things like that. But I, yes. I heard you guys use it, Enemies to Lovers. It is the superior trope. <laughs> Love it love it so much <laughs> everybody loves and prefers an enemies to lovers and you know what that's fair because we all hate men question mark maybe that's yeah, part I mean, of it like in a, <laughs> maybe that's where that comes from i don't know truth. it's just a guess a little a little of each i would say yeah. i yeah. would love to hear about what you guys are working on oh yeah that's right. oh me first um yeah so right now I have so much going on. I recently had like a weird ADHD <laughs> burst of energy where I wrote 6,000 words every day for three weeks straight, which That's meant so that I completed an entire novel um, and two novellas. The novel is a fish monster novella, a la The Shape of Water, um, if you're familiar with that movie. Uh, Wait, <laughs> one of my favorites. Not only do I love that movie, one of my all-time favorite novels is The Pisces by Melissa Broder. I was, so. I was just going to say The Pisces was also my inspiration. <laughs> 
inspiration for that, which uh, one of my, <laughs> that movie. Okay. So that is absolutely where I'm taking my inspiration from, except mine is definitely, it's on the smuttier side. It's a little campier. I would say it is definitely campier, but it's near and dear to my heart. And I love like a male protagonist who's just like a little bit disgusting. You know what I mean? Like he's a fish, right? It's kind of yeah. gross. Like he's gross. And I like want to just kind of like push the limits of um, what we will want to fuck is, is really where I'm going with that. So I, I find it fascinating. Right. And then I also have um, a holiday novella coming out, which is part of my series. I have, I have one self-published series on Kindle Unlimited also. The other, my debut book was traditionally published. So I'll have one holiday novella. And then I also wrote, rewrote a um, Christmas Carol retelling um, that is romance. It's a why choose smutty romance. So paranormal. I'm not sure. I don't, yeah, right. it's paranormal. Parent, it's a historical fantasy why choose smutty romance retelling of, and it's gender swapped, <laughs> a Christmas Carol. I did, I had a lot going on. Um, in a few weeks ago, don't. You know, I, would, ask, I, 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 first of all, wow. Um, yeah, <laughs> I was not on drugs either, and I would cop to it. I would cop um, to it. Is why choose? Is that like another term for reverse harem? Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And I think there's like discussion about reverse har- harem not being a great term to use because there's like elements to it. So we just say why choose now and who knows how that will change in the future. I don't know. So yeah, that's what I've been up to. The fish book is definitely coming out. Um, and my one Christmas novella is coming out. The other one we'll see. I don't know. We'll see when that comes out. So <laughs> just yeah. us. my apologies to the listener. <laughs> All right. SJ. <laughs> I do one thing at a time. Unlike Kat who like I gives me anxiety every time we're like we'll do our zoom writings together and she's like on a different book than she was yesterday um i recently my my book is with the editors right now so hans is book four the final book in my alliance series which is a dark mafia romance vigilante murderer dark um i'm very excited for this comes out december 28th so it's at the first editor i should get it back i think on monday and then i'll do the second editor and i'm trying i'm trying and if i if i don't succeed in this i'm not going to tell anybody um I'm trying not to start my next book until this book comes out because never ever never have I ever had a book release where I'm not already writing the next book and I you know it's just like again constantly writing I also have like 11 or 12 outlines to go so I'm like I have a lot of lot of books to get through so there's like the personal pressure of like I have a couple years worth of books I need to like just I want to get them out so I can get to new stuff you know so but this is this would be like the longest time I've ever gone without writing if I wait until after December twenty eighth. It'll be good again. for you. It Jesus. probably would. Yeah. I literally it was so funny. Like up until this literal conversation, I was like, Wow, I have two different books in the works. This is crazy. <laughs> No, it's still crazy. You're I also mean, running a business. You're doing all kinds of stuff. We're yeah. we are walking around day drinking, like smoking yeah. morning. Don't worry about us. Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I will yes. in my follow up email. I'm gonna I'm gonna go follow you guys back. But also, I want you guys to each tell me which of your respective books I should start with because oh. I really want to read one from each of you. But yeah. I, I'm overwhelmed with choice, so you'll have to. <laughs> There's a lot. Yeah. We'll see. Yes. Um, and I know you have to go. So thank you so much for coming on. I'm such a fan. Follow all your stuff. So excited to talk oh to you. Just this amazing. So fun. <laughs> Are you guys in the New York area? I'm in Minnesota. Charleston. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you live in Charleston, South Carolina? Yeah. Come oh visit. my God. My family lives in South Carolina. We go to Charleston all the time. Oh my God. Well, hit me up. I'm Let's always get- looking for an excuse to visit Kat. So. Anytime. Self-publishing summit in the world. Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Make it so.
<laughs> Chelsea, thank you so much. <laughs> We're definitely going to be following your career. And I hope that everybody checks your book out. Um, and I'm sure they will. The listeners of our podcast. So thank oh you, gosh. Chelsea. All right. And what? oh, and to the listeners, always, thanks for coming. Okay, I'm going to stop. I know we're running out of time. My turn. I remember someone so bright then. I was really trying not to cry then. I was really hugging you goodbye then. You can have my empathy when I'm dead. Please, you shouldn't listen to what I